Our scripture lesson this morning is from the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis, verses 3 through 11. I shall be reading from the New International Version. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when the suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Your mother and I and your brothers actually come to bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is the word of the Lord. That was well read. (laughs) Anybody with me on that? (laughs) I'm ready. It happened again this past week. A student came to complain to me about the church. I'm no stranger to such complaints from college students who are feeling a little bit jaded. And she came in and said something that's a recurring theme among students. I was taught stories of the Bible like they are fairy tale stories. And I feel like the church did me a disservice. That's why so many of us younger people don't want to hear Bible stories anymore because people seem to gloss them over, pretty them up. And Dr. Barnett, people out there need to see that people in the Bible were every bit as dysfunctional as you and me. And I agreed with her. But we also agreed, furthermore, that it's so amazing how God worked through so many of those dysfunctional people and those dysfunctional families anyway. Do you ever marvel at how he works through you and your family? I'm sure you do. Joseph was from what we would call a dysfunctional family. Now, you've heard me talk about this many a time. I did a lot of my Ph.D. work in pastoral counseling, and so I would hang around people at the seminary who would sidle up to me and say, you know, he comes from a dysfunctional family. And I was all, well, well, who doesn't? All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and all are dysfunctional and fall short as well as, well as families. But let me tell you, you hear Joseph's family story. You learn about the family system in which he grew up, and number one, you feel a whole lot better about your family, and number two, you're amazed he turned out to be such a godly, faithful man of God. And faithful really is the key word. Joseph is one of the few Bible characters against whom there is no flagrant flaw recorded in Scripture. Now, I know in his early years he might have been a bit naive, perhaps arrogant, 
But in 14 chapters of Genesis, we have significant detail about him, and there's no flagrant sin in any of that record. You can't say that about Abraham or Moses or David or Paul or Peter, and the list goes on. Joseph really is one of the most impressive examples of a godly person in all of Scripture. And I think his outstanding characteristic was faithfulness. He was loyal to God even when he had to endure a series of difficult circumstances. And when he was hated, he did not retaliate. When he was tempted, he did not yield. When life fell apart, he did not. Later on, when he was successful, he didn't strut. And at the end of his life... When he was near death, he did not cower. We're living in a time, as you well know, where there's a lack of commitment, a lack of integrity, a lot of disloyalty out there. But here's an example of a man who walked the talk and did so consistently. And he was faithful in all kinds of circumstances, good and bad. But like you and me, he came from a flawed family. So we begin this series on Joseph by examining his faithfulness in a flawed family. Uh, His his family was a true-life dysfunctional soap opera. It contained, and here's just a few things, favoritism, tattletelling, jealousy, betrayal, seduction, slavery, imprisonment, success, famine, reconciliation, and it goes on and on, and we're just getting started with his story. And, And to really appreciate the imperfections of his family system, you really have to go back a little. And to be honest, the soap opera goes all the way back to Abraham. But we'll just go back to Joseph's parents, and I hope you'll appreciate what he's dealing with here. Joseph had very flawed parents. How did Joseph's parents get married? Well, if you had heard the verse just before the one that Hobie began with in verse 3, if you went back to verse 2, it said, Joseph was out with the sons of Bilhah and Silpah. Now, who were they? Well, Joseph's father, Jacob, who you know was a conniving kind of trickster person anyway, he had a falling out with his twin brother Esau and had to go on the lamb. He flees for his life. He arrives at Padan Aram, and he gets a job with a man named Laban, who is a relative of his father. And after Jacob works there a month, Laban says, you know what, you're doing such a great job, and I'm not paying you anything. I need to be honorable and pay you something. What would you like? Well... Jacob liked his daughter, Rachel. She was very attractive, apparently, according to Scripture. There was another daughter whose name was Leah, who was not quite so attractive. It says that she had a tender eye or tender eyes. We don't know if she was cross-eyed or had, had a lazy eye. We don't know. But anyway, Rachel was the one who was perceived as more attractive. And Jacob really was crazy about Rachel. And he said, okay, Laban, I will work for you for seven years if you will let me marry your daughter, Rachel. And Laban thinks this is a good deal for everybody. And he agrees. Genesis 29, 20 says, so Jacob served, this is so sweet, so romantic. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Oh, so everything's setting up great. Now the seven years are up, an elaborate wedding ceremony is planned, and now to appreciate what happens next, you have to understand two things. First of all, it was the custom in that day for the older daughter to be married before a younger daughter, younger sister. No self-respecting father back then would allow the next to oldest daughter to be married before the eldest one. Secondly, weddings took place at night where you couldn't see things very well. 
All they had were oil lamps. Not only that, the bride wore a heavy veil over her face the entire ceremony and most all the evening, so you really couldn't see her anyway. Jacob goes to the wedding, arranged by Laban, and he marries a woman, but he does not marry Rachel. He marries Leah, Leah of the tender eyes. It says in Genesis 29:22. so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. Bible, Bible can be very straightforward. And morning comes along, and there's Leah. Now, imagine what's going on. I wonder what was going on in Jacob's mind that morning when he awakens. This is like a chick flick that's gone really, really south. The sun is streaming through the tent, and he looks over, and he thinks, I, I don't know what he thinks, but I wonder if he, you know, I, you know, Mom always told me that in the morning with the makeup off, your wife might look a little different, but wow, I don't know. Now, or he might have said, I never noticed how much Rachel really does look like Leah. But, but at some point, it hits him, this is Leah. This is Leah. And he bolts out of the tent, goes to Laban's home, and demands an explanation. Genesis twenty nine twenty five says, when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban responded, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. And he basically cuts a deal. He says, finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So Jacob finishes the week with Leah. I don't know how else to put it. And Laban then gives him daughter number two, Rachel, to be his wife, and then he has to work for seven more years. Now, I would think it's difficult enough for a child to grow up in a conflicted home. This home began with two wives who were sisters who were rivals. Okay, you follow me? Leah was jealous of Rachel because she was prettier. She was loved by her husband. Rachel was jealous of Leah because eventually Leah gave birth to four sons for Jacob, and Rachel was barren. She hadn't had any kids. So to compensate, Rachel comes up with this plan. She says, since I've not been able to give you a child, I want you to sleep with my servant girl, Bilhah, and she will be a surrogate mother and will adopt her children as our own. That's Bilhah, Bilhah and Zilpah in verse 2. Jacob, being a compliant husband, says, okay. And Bilhah had two sons. Not to be outdone, Leah persuades Jacob to impregnate her servant girl, Zilpah, And she gives him two more sons. Now Jacob has, follow me, four wives and ten sons because Leah gave him two more. And he had one daughter, but there was no child born to his favorite wife, who is Rachel. Now finally, Rachel gives, are y'all following me on all this? Rachel finally gives birth to a son, Joseph. And I want you to imagine the turmoil that exists in this home as Joseph is growing up. You have a dad who is a conniver and who's greedy. You have a mother who's in competition with her sister. And they're both married to the same man and they're constantly bickering. You have two servant girls also vying for attention for their children who are also in the house. Now, finish this sentence. When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Try four mamas who ain't happy under the same roof. I mean, this, this is a crazy situation. Not just a blended family. This is just a crazy situation. Who has a chance to turn out okay 
in an environment like that. And to make matters more difficult for Joseph, if you study, while he's still a little boy, his father decides to move. He had a heated falling out with Laban, and they pack up and move all of a sudden, so Joseph is exposed to all this insecurity as a child. And then the worst blow of all comes a bit later on. Joseph's mother, Rachel, dies giving birth to his little brother, Benjamin. Joseph was about 10 years of age, that tender age of life. Joseph was left without a mother in a strange country with a dysfunctional family. Now, how could anybody be faithful when he grows up in an environment like that? And not only does Joseph have flawed parents, as you know, he has flawed brothers who are also extremely jealous and hateful of him. There's no surprise that there's sibling rivalry among these brothers. You bring together 12 sons and one daughter from four different mothers, there's going to be conflict. And the text makes it very clear that the sons of Leah, they know that their mother is not loved by their father, and the sons of the concubines are feeling inferior all the time. It's a volatile situation that could easily explode at any time. And to make matters worse, Jacob doesn't even attempt to conceal the fact that what? Joseph is his favorite son. Verse 3, now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had also been born to him by the wife who was his favorite, Rachel. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Did any of y'all in Sunday school ever have a picture, a coloring picture of that coat of many colors? Do you remember taking a marker or a crayon and you were given a picture of Joseph's coat of many colors and you colored it in? Later on it became known as a, an amazing technicolor dream coat, as you know. In reality, it was probably a long coat, really much like the one you see on your bulletin cover, by the way. I thought that was interesting that it looks a lot like that. It wasn't colorful so much as it, it, had, it was a long sleeve coat, a long coat bordered with color. It was the kind of coat that was worn by nobility, very, very expensive. It was a garment of distinction, really, and it enraged Joseph's brothers every time they saw it. And and, and every time parents show favoritism in any way, that's going to fan the flame of sibling rivalry. I mean, think about a parent who takes one child to Saks and they get designer jeans and a Gucci pocketbook, and then the rest of the kids, well, I'm taking you to Walmart. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be conflict. Or maybe there's one child who turns 16 and they give that, that child a sports car and the next one turns 16 and it's, it's a bicycle. There's going to be trouble there. Sometimes it's hard not to show perceived favoritism. Sometimes you have a child who is more dependent upon you than the others because of some weakness, because of something that they struggle with and a parent has to pay special attention to them and that's understandable. Irma Bombeck put it this way, every mother has a favorite child, it's the one who needs you at the moment for whatever the reason, could be, but it's a wise parent who recognizes that you can't treat children all alike, but you can love them all equally. It goes a long way toward the well-being of a child when they know that they're equally loved. I love the story that came out a few years ago about a Sunday school teacher who had two young boys come into the Sunday school class, and she, of course, being a good Baptist, wanted to get them registered for Sunday school class, and so she uh, pulled out a piece of paper to get some information on them, and she said, how old are you boys? And the bolder one said, "Uh, we're both seven. She said, okay. When were your birthdays? And and, uh, he said, well, yeah, and and she said, y'all are brothers, right? She said, yes, and he said, well, I was born on April 18th, and my brother was born on April 24th. 
And, and she said, that's impossible. I said, uh-uh, no, it's true. She said, no, y'all are brothers? Oh, yeah, well, one of us is adopted. And, and before thinking about it, she blurted out, oh, which one of you is adopted? And she immediately felt terrible, you know, asking that question like I'm singling out one of them. But it was a wonderful moment because the boys smiled at each other. And one of them said, you know, we asked Dad that a while back, and he just said he loved us both so much and that he couldn't even remember for the life of him which one of us was adopted. Now, that's the kind of equal expression that's so wonderful, that's so beautiful, and it helps build a godly home. Unfortunately, that was not present in Joseph's home. Joseph's parents were flawed. His family was flawed. But let's just put it out there. Joseph wasn't perfect either. Most of the biblical record shows him being a man of staunch integrity. But early on, he had to overcome a spirit possibly of arrogance, definitely a spirit of naivete. Uh, Verse 1 in this same chapter talks about him tattling on his brothers. He gives a poor report about his brothers. We don't know exactly what it is. It might have been something justified. They were doing something really wrong, and he felt as a matter of conscience that he needed to report it, or it could have been something really frivolous, and he just felt like tattling on them. We really don't know. But he's a good young man, but you realize in his earlier years, he really had a naive streak and maybe an arrogant streak. And for some reason, he did not realize his brother's antagonism toward him. He didn't realize the depth of their hostility towards him. And in particular, what incurred the wrath from the brothers? It was that coat, which he wore a lot. You know, it's one thing for a father to give that kind of a coat just to one of the sons, but it's another thing for that son to wear it all over the place. Uh, You know, if if someone gives their son a tuxedo and that kid goes out and mows the lawn with it, that's a little strange and that's a little over the top, but that's kind of what Joseph was doing. In fact, he wore that coat when he was out tending the field, this expensive, extravagant coat. Ordinarily, someone would not do such a thing, and they hated him for that. Verse 4 says that every time the brothers saw that coat, it reminded them of their father's special love for Joseph. And they hated Joseph so much, Scripture says, they could not even speak a kind word to him. So Joseph caught their wrath also by what? Relating those dreams that we know about. All of the other sheaves bowing to his in his dream, then the one with the sun and the moon and the 11 stars representing the brothers and his parents, and they're all bowing to him. And the brothers are just enraged by this. They bristle at that. Do you intend to reign over us? Do you intend to rule us, Joseph? And it says, and they hated him all the more for these dreams that he had. All this dysfunction, all this soap opera, and more to come. But thanks be to God, here's the good news. It's difficult to grow up in an imperfect family and be faithful to God, but it is possible. I can't help but think of the little girl who Diane shared about earlier. You know, if she is a self-feeding disciple who can be in the process even now of overcoming what might well be a dysfunctional family, what definitely is a dysfunctional family like you and me, but also a painfully dysfunctional environment with gangs around, drugs around, shanties all around, and yet here she is telling the stories of Jesus to kids younger than she is, if she can overcome her situation, her context, her background, her pedigree, we can too. Sometimes we focus so much on our past and we almost make an idol out of it. 
make an idol out of our pedigree or, or, or the, the, the context in which we grew up, and, and we let that really get the best of us so often, and we want to blame our parents, we want to blame our environment, we want to blame the past for our imperfections, but there comes a time where you've got to forgive, get over it, and move on. It's time to move forward, not backward. When you're driving a car, it's dangerous to always be looking in the rearview mirror, isn't it? You're going to wreck. You've got to look on the road ahead and move forward. And with God's help, we can do that even when we are coming out of a difficult family or some other kind of dysfunctional situation that's hampering us at the moment. It was very meaningful to me about a month ago. I reconnected with a former student whom I taught at a different university. Uh, Her name is Cindy. And she is doing so well. She is a clinical psychologist helping people on a daily basis. Uh, She's married to a wonderful man. They've got two wonderful young sons. But I remember when I met her after a class I taught at that other school. And uh, she came into my office to ask me some general questions about the class. And we started uh, talking about her family background. And I'll just give you, you know, a, a piece of it. Her, her mother uh, was a, an extreme codependent personality who was married to an alcoholic father who was abusive to her. They divorced. Her mother then married a man who was bipolar, who also had two sons who were very abusive toward this young lady with whom I am conversing. The young lady also had a biological sister who was suicidal on a recurring basis and she just shared all of this to me and I thought my goodness you know how do you grow up in that and 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 get to a point of being reasonably healthy and and I pretty much asked her that and I said you know how are you doing now oh I'm doing okay I still have pain over it I'm still kind of processing through it but I'm doing okay and 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 I said well what what has helped you the most she said well when I was in uh, eighth grade Uh, a friend of mine invited me to church and I had never had this understanding I'd never been to church didn't know the Bible at all but went there and there was this incredible sense of family there and I thought this in a way can be the family that I've always been looking for and she said I was embarrassed because I didn't know anything about the Bible really but I did my best to learn from the preacher and the teachers and these other people and I remember asking her at one point when things got really bad what did you do I mean, did you feel like you had somebody to go to? And she said, not always. I said, well, what did you do? And she went like this. She said, I'd pray like this. <laughs> and I just said, like that? And she said, yep. And I said, well, gosh. And, and, and I said, and it, were you taught to pray that way? She said, no, I did that myself. And, and I said, well, why do you do that? And she said, you probably haven't seen these. And she turned her palms out. And I know some of y'all don't like this, but this is a young lady who was not in the church for a long time. But uh, she heard something the preacher said. And she put on one wrist in some fancy lettering, yes, in a tattoo form, I-A-T. It was three letters, I-A-T on her left wrist and then G-W-G on the right wrist. And I looked at that and I thought, well, that, <laughs> that's interesting. That's what's, what got you through? She said, yes. And, and I figured it was initials. It was initials of maybe two different people who meant a lot to her, family member or teacher, counselor, whoever it might be. And I thought, you know, she, but she said, no, I would always look at that as I prayed. Look right there. I was like, okay, I-A-T. And I did. I said, are those initials? She said, well, sort of. I said, okay, so it's a couple of people? said, no, 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 it's really abbreviations. I said, really? I-A-T-G-W-G? I said, well, what does it mean? She said, in all things, God works good. (laughs) She had heard the preacher share those words in a sermon. 
And she had asked the Sunday school teacher about those words too. And she never could remember what book it was in, but she knew it was in Scripture, and it just struck her. And, and she did, and, and among other tattoos that she had, she went and got I-A-T-G-W-G. In all things, God works good. And she said, every time I would pray to the Lord when things really got bad at home, and sometimes it got horrific, but I would pray and I would look at, look at those, those abbreviation words. In all things, God works good. Wow. I'm not saying that we need to go out and get tattooed, trust me, but I do ask that maybe we can latch on to that ourselves, latch on to that reality, trusting that no matter what's gone on in our dysfunctional past, which we all have because we are broken sinners in need of grace, we can recall that in all things, if we are faithful like Joseph, God will work for good. Are you at a point where you can let go of something from your past? Is there some kind of dysfunction in your own life you can let go of at this point? Can you overcome it? Can you learn to be more faithful? Joseph was able to do that and overcame these horrible, horrible circumstances in his own family. He became a successful servant of God. He became prime minister of Egypt. And not only that, but all the more, a great godly man. And we can succeed too in spite of our own past dysfunction, whatever it might be. You know who else came from an imperfect family? Jesus. Think about it. By the time he was a teenager, as best we can tell by scholarship, by the time he was a teenager, he was in a single-parent household. He had brothers who were in conflict with him. They didn't know what to do with him. They ridiculed him. They didn't want to be associated with him. And he lived a difficult life. And think about, all, think about all the dysfunction he put up with in his three-year ministry. Think about the dysfunction he continues to have to deal with with you and me. And yet, in spite of that background, he was true to his mission, a mission that involved a lot of pain, a lot of pain that you and I still put him through. But maybe, just maybe, we can trust him as he speaks to us, reminding us that all things work for good. There's an echo of that from the past. You remember when Joseph talks to his brothers? Right toward the end of the whole book of Genesis, right through the end to the end of the Joseph story. And the brothers are fearful of him, and he says, don't worry, I forgive you. And what did he say? You meant it for evil, but God worked it for good. That's the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28. Will you trust those words in your own life? I'd like for us to bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. And I want to ask you this very pointed question. What dysfunction are you needing to overcome in your life? It could be a family situation, but it could also be some other relational situation with a loved one or someone at work, a neighbor, a student? Could it be a dysfunctional attitude that you have towards someone or something or some circumstance? Could it be some dysfunctional behavior that only you know about, but God knows about, and you know you need to curb that and correct that and ask God's forgiveness and for his grace and strength for the road ahead? Or is there a past wound in your life that has caused so much pain, but yet you need to let go of it? I'd like to ask that silently now if you would offer a quiet prayer to God that you could lift up whatever it is that you're struggling with now the most, that which you could call 
a dysfunction, uh, a, 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 a symptom of brokenness, a symptom of sinfulness. Lift that up to him now and ask for his forgiveness and grace and ask that you can walk with newness of life and faithfulness in him. Lord, all of us are sinners. We confess that corporately together, but we pray that each and every one of us would individually have the strength and courage to confess our sinfulness to you and our need for your grace. We reach out to you now because of how frail and fragile and broken and corrupted we are. We thank you that as family, as church, we can gather together and corporately confess our need for you. None of us is perfect. As a church body, we are not perfect, but we want so badly to serve you more effectively, more faithfully, and help us to do just that. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the only reason we can take all of this dysfunction, hand it back over to him, that we might walk in newness of life, and we ask that we would glorify him in our hearts throughout this day and this week because of that greatest of gifts he gave to us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.